So I invite you to turn to John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel as it's known. John, the Gospel according to John. John the Apostle, who does not name himself in this Gospel, refers to himself, of course, as the disciple who Jesus loved in his uh, expression of humility, I'm sure. And instead, the times that we do see the name John appear, it's typically referring to uh, Peter's father, John. Peter is the uh, other apostle that will come along shortly. We're out of the prologue now, verses 1 to 18. We've entered into the body of this first chapter. As uh, we're remembering last week, and as was the first part of John the Baptist, we see the introduction. As I said, John refers to things sort of in a circular manner. So as he mentions someone or some event, he circles back around and he'll mention it again. That's kind of his style. It's kind of his way. So we know that John has already been mentioned in verse 15 of chapter 1. John wore witness about him. That's John the Baptist. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was from he was before me. And so we see him revisiting that after he goes into talking about who the true light is, that is Christ, of course, when he comes. And now he's drilling down a little bit deeper on John the Baptist in verse 19 through 34 this morning. We're going to look at verse 29 through 34 this morning and in part two. So Last week, you remember, the Pharisees, had, the Sanhedrin had sent priests and Levites to investigate John the Baptist, who is the uh, messenger of God, as he's referred to in the Old Testament. He's the forerunner of God, and they're there to sort of vet out who he is. He's there uh, some 30 miles or so away by the Dead Sea in the wilderness just west of there. He's in that wilderness. He's been there a long time. We don't know exactly how long, but he emerges from the wilderness when we pick up our text and uh, or we find him there in the wilderness and we see Jesus coming to him this morning. So uh, we're, it's an exciting time. But this has been broken down into three parts, this series, because John the Baptist's ministry, at least in this portion of Scripture, is in three successive days. So last week was part one or day one where we find the investigation of the messenger uh, of God, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. And today we'll be looking at verse 19, or I'm sorry, verse 29 through 34, as we look at the identification of the Messiah who was sent by the Father. And then, Lord willing, this, there'll be the next day. You can see it, the text there, the next day. So these are individual days. And these three successive days in the life and ministry of the John the Baptist are are very event-filled, and I'm sure that's why John includes them. He offers more information uh, to the aspects of his ministry that he picks up that the, synoptic, the synoptics don't exactly cover in, in the way that John does. And then finally, in verse 35 to 42, we will look at day three, which is the inclination of the men who would become followers of Jesus Christ. So, uh, we looked at that interrogation, if you will, last week, where the in verse 19 and following, the priests and Levites came and basically were asking this simple question, who are you? And they try to make some guesses because I imagine, <clears throat> I don't see it in the text there, but if you can kind of read between that tiny space that's there, there was probably, they're waiting for an answer and didn't get one. <laughs> so he knows what they're looking for by his response. They didn't ask him if he was the Christ, but he responds that way in full denial that he is the Christ. Well, I'm not the Christ, he could say. That's what he's saying in the text here. I am not the Christ in verse 20. And they asked, well, what then? And again, I think there's a little space there. So I don't think he's said much. Uh, so they have to make some guesses. Will you allow me that license? I think I see it there. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? We know Elijah has to come. Before the judgment, Elijah himself is going to come. And he says, um, I'm not. Could you give us a little more? But he doesn't. So they have to make another guess. Are you the prophet? It, we know that in the Pentateuch, Moses said there's going to be a prophet like me that comes. 
John knows who they're talking about. They're talking about Christ. They're not talking about him who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, because that's who he is. He's that prophet that would be the forerunner of Christ, as we heard in Zechariah, his father's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, 67 and following. So we know that he's going to be a type of Elijah, but am I Elijah? Nope. Because he knows what they mean by that. Is this, is the judgment coming? Is Messiah coming? If you're not Christ, are you Elijah? They meant that quite literally. No, I'm not the Elijah that will come in the end times when Christ comes to judge. No, that's not, that's not who I am. He knows what they're after, I think. And he answers, no. So they said to him, are, uh, who are you? They give up. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's quoting Isaiah here again, and this is quoted in all four Gospels in, uh, in the context of John the Baptist. He's come simply as a voice. Don't, don't, give me a, don't put me in a box. I, I'm not Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet that Mo Moses is talking about because that would be Christ as well. I'm none of those things. All I am is a voice. That's what you need to pay attention to because I've got something very important to declare to you when he comes. There's even one among us. There's one among you. Not necessarily standing there in the immediacy of that moment, but among you in terms of he's a fellow Jew. Among you in the sense that he is in the line of David. Among you, and you should pay close attention when he comes. So, to prepare for that, verse 23, I'm a voice crying of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah also said. So, what do you mean make a way? I mean, you, you want us to like pave a road? Where, what direction is he coming from? There's a reason John's ministry takes place in the desert because that's what they've made out of their religion. And as I said last week, as he comes to make the way straight, bring up the low places, bring down the high places, what's he talking about? He's talking about their hearts. Make your heart right. You're not ready to receive the Messiah. You're too filled with yourself and what you've made of religion. And don't make him on this what should be a straight highway into your hearts. Crawl over a bunch of dead lumber of the dead religion that you've made of it. Don't let him have to weed through the nastiness and sort through your hypocrisies to find out what is actually genuine with you. Open up your hearts. Be ready to receive him. Don't make him chase after you in the wilderness wanderings of your worldliness. Don't do that. Get your heart ready because the Messiah has come. And all I am is a voice to declare that. He's a no-nonsense guy. I like that about him. He's very succinct. He's straightforward. He's bold. He has no fear of man. He's going to boldly proclaim what the scripture says. Eye to eye. No embellishment. No nervous fear of man creeping in that he feels like he's got to sort of explain himself or make apology. No problem with people pleasing. He doesn't care to win their approval. He's out in the desert, for goodness sake, wearing a camel skin frock and a leather belt and eating kind of like nachos, I think. <laughs> Dipping the locusts into the wild honey. That doesn't sound altogether bad, put it that way. That's who he is. I don't have time for all that. All that stuff that you engage in and call messianic Judaism is devoid of the Messiah. So it's dead lumber. That's all it is. It's ashes. It's mud. It's hypocrisy, even worse. Okay, then let us ask you this, verse 25. Um, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. You know, water. You've got, 
you've got multiple mikvahs at the at the bottom of the steps that lead up to the temple so that your priests can continually wash people. And that's just water, right? Because it doesn't finally cleanse. But there's one coming. And he's going to baptize in what? This Holy Spirit and with fire. He's going to burn up all that dead lumber. He's going to put a holy flame to it and watch it blaze and burn away. And I hope there's something left there, something that he can work with in your hearts. That's, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, a Bethany much further away from Jerusalem than the Bethany you're familiar with. They don't know where it is actually today. Across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now our text. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, the eternality of Christ. Obviously, verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in his, to Israel. We'll find out what that means as we go along. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these words. Powerful, powerful testimony of this man that you had raised up in the spirit of living Christ to be his forerunner, the messenger, to make it clear. You wanted to make it clear out of your great love for those who had altogether destroyed what should have been a living, active faith. Anxiously anticipating the arrival Messiah, they shouldn't need a John the Baptist to tell them who it is. That should be us in the roles that we have today. Help us with that. So to that end, O oh Lord, help us this morning to understand that this word of yours always in every case has today's relevancies for us. We don't have to infuse it with relevancy. It's there because it's a living word in real time. So help us, Lord, help us that we uh, don't have yet another reason to ask for your forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name, the, the Messiah, the one proclaimed. Amen. So three days in the life of John the Baptist, and we are looking at the identification of Messiah sent by the Father. This is day two. This is beginning in verse 29. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Eke agnas dei. Eke agnas dei. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sin, excuse me, the sin of the world. We'll get to the importance of that word being in the singular who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus had just come from the desert, so we can set the stage here of his arrival here at this particular moment in time. He's already been baptized by John the Baptist, so a lot, again, can be gleaned from the synoptics as you read Matthew chapter 3 and as you read, of course, Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 and chapter 3 as well. Uh, Luke gives far more detail on things. Mark, the briefest account, and 
Matthew uh, gives some things. And there's, there are things, as I said, that are, they have all four of the Gospels have in common in terms of what they disclose. So, behold the Lamb of God who takes us. So he's coming from the desert, Jesus is, because that's where John was baptizing. So he's already been baptized. And from his baptism, we learn in the synoptics that he went from being baptized by John, where John said, you should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. There's got to be some knowledge of who he is for John to even say that. So this is at least 40 days from that event because he was went right from that baptism into the temptation by Satan. You'll recall in Matthew chapter four and in other places as well in the synoptics. So he's been baptized by John and he's been in the wilderness with and been fasting for 40 days and tempted by the enemy. And you know, if you remember in Matthew's account, Jesus' response to John the Baptist is interesting when he said, I should be baptizing you. He said, no, that that all of these things might be fulfilled. So in order to qualify as a sacrifice for mankind, he has to do all of the, he needs to do, it's needful for him to participate in all of the things that they will. And so what it caused me to be reminded of from the temptation of Christ is that then in the temptation of Christ, he's tempted because we're tempted, right? So he's fulfilling all the fulfillments that it would take for him to qualify as a fully 100% man. And so the temptation is yet another thing. But as I was reviewing that this week, it impressed me because I thought, because I'm coming off of what, what he told John at the baptism. He said, I need to fulfill all things so that I can qualify as a sacrifice for mankind if, if I can embellish on that a little bit. So he does the same thing in the temptation. He limits himself because he's the God man. He limits himself in dealing with the enemy to the only weapons at his disposal that he's given all of us. So in other words, he responds to Satan the same way we should with what the word of God. What could he have done? as omnipotent creator to Satan, like a breath and blow him into, I don't know, Russia, China. That's a good spot for him while he's already there, you know, in a sense. He could have done anything to deal with Satan straight away. And what did he do? All he did was limit himself to the word of God because he knew that's all we would be equipped to have, but that's all that we need, the Holy Spirit and the word of God. So here he is. Now he shows up after this. So this is some 40 days later. So Matthew 3, 16 to 4, verse 1. There's a chapter break there, but it goes right on to make the point here that I was just making. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending, this is John the Baptist, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it goes right into this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he goes right from the baptism right out into the wilderness to be tempted. And now he's coming from that. And John is saying, behold, the Lamb of God. So this word is used as it's defined. This word in the Greek is used as an interjection to denote surprise, as one person put it. So he's, it's more like saying, look. See, that gets our attention more than behold. We're used to reading behold, and it doesn't have the same impact anymore. Maybe it doesn't. But it's like saying, look, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God. So in our culture, we have this this phrase that says, seeing is what? Believing. It's precisely the opposite here. Believing is actually seeing. Those who believe are granted the sight to see. And they're able to see that this is the Christ. That's why we talk a lot about the importance of us 
imbibing the characteristics of Christ because they can't see him. So if we're going to evangelize the culture that's dead and blind, they need to see. But it takes belief in order to see. That's the point. So Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me physically? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet what? Have believed. Believing grants sight. Believing grants communion. You are in a communal relationship with the risen Messiah because of your faith. You are saved because of your faith. So, Believing, we see. That's the point here. Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions, the conviction of things what? You can't see it physically. But I am absolutely certain that the one I've been allowed to see is the Messiah. And I believe. And so we see later on in that chapter with Moses, when he left Egypt in verse 27 of, Matthew, of Hebrews 11, by faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Why not? For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There it is. We see one who is invisible. He made that clear. Jesus made it clear to Nicodemus, didn't he, in chapter 3 of John? God is two things, spirit and truth. No one has seen the Father and lived. So, what is this then that grants sight? It's believing. 2 Corinthians 5 7, the major distinction of the Christian, of course, is that they walk by faith, which is synonymous with belief, and not what? Not sight. We're challenged by that, aren't we? We walk through a visible world believing in one who is invisible and saying he's here now. He's here among us. I like 1 Peter 1, 8 to, to, to 9. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, yet you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible, full of glory so that you enjoy the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of souls. So the outcome of your faith, your believing, is the salvation of your soul. And it allows you to see, see spiritually. I don't need to see him come walking up. That's the sort of metaphor here. That's the sort of type here. He literally was walking up as a man, quite physically, ambulatory. He's walking up and he's saying, look, That's your message. That's mine. Look. It's a message to our family members over Thanksgiving. Look. Don't you see? And that's why John's one-fold exhortation in his role is make straight the path to your hearts. If you look more like the world then you do the Messiah. You become the cataracts of their sight. And they can't see him. They need to see him. How he thinks. How does he think? What's his perspective on, on the world right now? What, what, what words would he be saying? What were important to him? How did he love? I have no idea what I used to call love before I knew Jesus Christ, before he granted me sight and brought me out of the mud pit that I had made in my life and called that muck and mire love. His name is love. I see him now. That's what he needs to see in us. That's why we gather in first hour, isn't it? So we can deal with conflict re resolution in a very practical manner so they might see Christ in us in the way we handle things. He's given us the means. He's given us the way. He's given us the power. And all that we could ever want or need in his word. That people might see. What did they say in, in the ancient Hebrews when they were in the wilderness and there was these fiery serpents 
that were, they were poisonous, that were biting them and killing them. What did God tell Moses to do? I want you to take the serpent, the thing that's killing them, and I want you to put it up on a pole. That's all you have to do, and then they'll be fine. Is that what he said? What do they have to do? They have to do something. What is it? They have to look at him. Look! There he is, one who died, who didn't deserve to die. He died because of who I was, and now he's alive in me. Do you see something different in me? A difference in the way I talk? A difference in my perspective, my worldview, in the things that are my entertainments? The things that... All of this, all of this works toward allowing them to see Christ in greater and greater form, in greater detail. For those who knew us back when and now see us. Is it the same old dumb humor? Is it the same old entertainments? We're blending in this crazy concept that we're more effective in our evangelizing if we act and look like they do with our music and with our entertainments and amusements. That's crazy. That's crazy. I saw something different when I came out of New York City in the mud pit I made of my life. I saw people that looked completely different than me. And they had this love, this non-judgmental love. You're ready for the judging, right? Oh, you're schooled in that. You're, you're quite skilled in that. Oh, come on, bring it on. Used to it. And they're not doing that. They're not judging me. Why are they not judging me, by the way? Because they've already been judged. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge. They need grace. They've already been judged. And he loved enough to come and die so that we might look and see him on the cross. He grant us life and light, which is synonymous with truth. Now I, now I see life through the grid of truth. Now I understand things. How, how in the world can a man break in while, while four college students are sleeping and bludgeon them with a knife? You won't make any sense out of this other than to say this is absolute madness. I can't make any sense out of it. The only place to take them is the same place that old Scottish minister did when in Dunblane, Scotland, all of those school children in the 1990s were, were shot. I, and they said, what do you say to the parents? I take them to the cross. It's the only place that makes sense out of all this madness. Look at him there. It's not easy to look at, is it? I don't want to look at him dying for my sins. I don't want to see him suffering and, and shedding his blood. I should be up there. And he says, I know. But I love you. So I'll go. Why? Wait a minute. Your word says that while I was still sinning, you did that. Romans 5, 8. What kind of love is this? Can you help me? What kind of love is this? So they looked in the wilderness. They looked up. And that's our single message. Look. The woman at the well, come see a man. Come see a man who told me everything about myself. Yeah, that's right. He knows everything about that I conveniently, a lot of things that I conveniently forgot, yeah? I don't want to remember that. He doesn't forget anything. He's omniscient. He chooses not to remember it anymore. That's an amazing act of love. More love than we could ever muster because we remember. He's the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sins of the world. See, I said it again. That's wrong. And there's an important reason why. He takes away the sin of the world. Where does he take them? He takes them away, this Aaron in the Greek. It means to, to lift up, to carry, to remove. Where'd it, where'd it go? Where did it go? This is, in the singular, this to take away the sin of the world. He took upon himself. You see? It's in the present tense. So this is ongoing. So in other words, it still applies right now for you who wrestle with your sin. Thank God. Yes? Thank God. It's intended to show the completeness of Christ's atonement. His complete satisfaction and the continual application of his once-made sacrifice. He, in other words, as one writer said, he, he's always taking sin away. Why? Yeah. So it reminded me of the whole scapegoat. You remember? The two goats that God told Moses to tell Aaron, take two goats on the Day of Atonement. I've, I've got some isolated segments from there. but So this is the Day of Atonement, and one of those would represent the sin offering itself. So one had to die, and then the other, you remember the sins were, yes, they put their hands on the goat's head and a sort of transfer of the sins of the nation and set it free in the wilderness. So let me just give you some of these segments, which is, of course, indicative of permanently removing these things. But let's see what it says here. And so I, I don't want to read the whole chapter. It's too much for our time today. But um, these seg sections of Leviticus 16, where we see this happening. So in verse 9 to 10, And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell. So it was by lot that they chose which one was which fell on the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for uh, Azazel, this is interesting. I had to look into this. I'm like, what is this? They don't really know if this is a place or a person, but the it's a compound word in the Hebrew that means goat and take away. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive for the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So this is the goat going away. Verse 15 and 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with it its blood, as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins, all their sins for the entire nation. Listen carefully. He came to take away the sin of the world. Now stay with me, okay? Verse 20 to 22, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. What word was repeated three times? <laughs> Just in case you didn't catch that. Yes, all. All the iniquities of the people of Israel, all of them went away in this atoning uh, sacrifice of this second goat. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. So he takes away the sin of the world. 
He sent it away in the wilderness to finish this Leviticus section by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So this is a type which would be fulfilled, obviously, in what John the Baptist is now declaring. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, what? The, the sin of the world. Hmm. Now we do some managing with that, don't we? Some do. What that word world really defines. Can we let it say what it says? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God sent His only begotten Son because He loved We've got more work to do, so let's dig in. The sin of the world is singular in the Greek. His sacrifice, and here's our phrase, right? The sacrifice is sufficient for what? Help me out. Reform people. His sacrifice was sufficient for, it was mentioned three times in the two goat sacrifice, right? So for all, every sin that was ever committed by mankind. Are you comfortable? You okay? Every sin that the entirety of mankind, his sacrifice, we're talking about atonement here, is sufficient. Is it not? Good. Glad we're okay. But it's only efficient for those who don't bring the E word out yet, for those who believe. That's all we need to know in order to evangelize, right? It's all there for you. We witness to family members and friends over Thanksgiving in a way that it's already paid. It's all, why would you not take advantage of that? It's already been paid for you. Oh, not me. Yes, you. Should I roll off a few scrolls of my background? And do we stop sinning when we do believe and we can see? No, that's why it's in present tense. It's continual. It keeps going. He died to take away the sin of the world. I will take it all on. But it's only efficient. It's only going to be effective to those who believe. So that's, that's our task, isn't it? They need to see him in order to do that. In the best way we can manage it, not only in what we have to say when we present the gospel, but in the way we what? Live. The way we live. Do they see something different? So not all are saved, and we know that. They're not all saved by his sacrifice, but for one reason. They do not believe. Don't go any further than that. Don't go into Romans 9, okay? Don't do that yet because you'll muck up your evangelism approach. All of the world's sin is available for forgiveness, but they must believe. That's it. That's it. Otherwise, you're going to have trouble understanding the Scripture when they're talking, for instance, about wicked false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2 where it says these wicked false teachers are, quote, denying the master who bought them. What does that mean? Denying the master who bought them. What does that mean? Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. I paid for you, but you would not believe. That's what it means. Yes? I paid the price. My son paid the price. There isn't a single person on this planet that ever lived or ever will live that can't access that. They simply must believe. We don't rest in Romans 9. We simply agonize in our prayers over this revelation that it's all there for you if you would only believe. That's our job. That and prayer, isn't it? Or you'll have trouble with 2 Corinthians 5.19, understanding that, when it says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. 
When Christ gave the atonement, it was for the sin of the world. It was sufficient for every human being that would ever live and every single sin they would ever commit. He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's our message. That's it. God has been reconciling the world. Why don't you come be a part of it? You know that you're living in a way that's incongruent, the way your designer, the way your loving creator, who continues to give you breath and space to live, you continue to deny that there's a problem here, that there is a God and he will judge. Why won't you come? Why won't you come? It also, in the ESV, there's a little asterisk there in that 2 Corinthians 5.19 verse because it, it can also be put this way. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There he is. There he is on the cross. Here it is, he says. Here's the reconciliation. I've done it. Tetelestai is a big word. It is finished. Second Peter 3, 9, you have to exercise yourself pretty rigorously to explain this one away if you don't understand the sufficiency of that atonement. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's patient toward those who still draw breath that we love, that don't know Christ. He's patient toward you, not wishing that some of you should perish. What is it? Oh, I'm sorry. Any. You're going to have to really go through some wrangling to explain this if you don't understand the sufficiency of the atonement for all of mankind because the Lamb of God has come, sacrificed His life to take away the sin of the world He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all, all. Does all mean all? Or my, help me out. That all should reach repentance. Praise the Lord, he's that loving, right? He loves my family members. He loves my, my brother who apostatized and ran off, mocking and chiding Christianity. I have to pray on that love. Let's please don't go, oh, I guess he wasn't one of the elect. Yeah, we're the ones that are incapable of being as loving and patient as God is. And our theology is wrong. That's the problem. And we're misdefining who God is. He, it says clearly right here that he, he's not happy that any would perish. Turn ye, turn ye, he says through his prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18. Turn ye, turn ye, why will you perish? He loves his people. He wants them to come. How do we reconcile all this? Have you figured it out? Raise your hand, I want to talk to you afterward. All I know is how delighted, how happy I am that he's a God who is patient. He's patiently waiting, and I'm praying, Lord, be patient, be patient. This is my brother, the brother you've given me in my family. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray. Whether it's a year, 10 years, or 30, we pray without ceasing. I like what J.C. Ryle says here. He goes, Christ's intercession is the peculiar privilege of his people, but Christ's atonement is a benefit which is offered freely and honestly to all mankind, end quote. I hope you're fine with that quotation. If not, maybe you'd like to hear from Brother Calvin. Here's what he said. On this verse, on this clause, Quote, when he says the sin of the world, he extends this favor indiscriminately to the whole human race. Now, our duty to, is to embrace the benefit which is offered to how many? All. That's what he says. 
that each of us may be convinced that there is nothing to hinder him from obtaining reconciliation in Christ. Let me read that one more time. That each of us may be convinced that there is nothing to hinder him from obtaining reconciliation in Christ. Don't let Romans 9 be a roadblock that causes you to slow down in your, in your compassion, in your caring, in your patience, in your prayers. Don't do it. He's not putting it there. God isn't. Christ isn't. So we need to be convinced that there's nothing to hinder him from obtaining reconciliation in Christ. That's why we, knowing the fear of God, we do what? We're persuasive. Be persuasive. Don't say, you know, oh, I prayed him for him one, two, three times, whatever, through the years, a few times here and there. And that tried to explain the gospel and he shut me down. And so, you know, I guess he's not part of the elect. Is that what God wants us to do? No, he does not. He does not. We are to persuade men. Whatever I can learn about you to help you see, to, to, to make that path straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about your life. Get to know them. Say, well, you know, when you did this, or you said that, or this marriage blew up, or your parenting went south, or whatever happened in your life, what do you think about that? I know you believe that there's a God. What do you think he thinks about that? Finding a way. Did you know that the propitiation, the satisfaction, the expiation is there waiting for you? It's already there. That needs to be the perspective. So we need to be convinced that there's nothing to hinder him from obtaining reconciliation in Christ, provided that he comes to him by the guidance of faith. Yeah? End quote. The benefit of Christ's sacrifice is genuinely and sincerely offered and available to the whole human race. Would you agree? That's what the Scripture says, the way I see it. Our message then to the whole world is, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That includes you. That includes me. Praise the Lord. The rest is up to the Lord in our fervent prayer and our unwillingness to cease in our prayers. We pray, as First Thessalonians says, without ceasing. And then we can say from Isaiah 43.25, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Colossians 2.14 in the King James Version, because he uses the same word, our same English word anyway, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way. He's gone with it. Where did he go? I don't know. He headed east. How far has he got to go before he gets to the west? Well, if you start walking east on the globe, my friends, you never do hit the west, do you? You head south, eventually you start going north. I mean, you head north, you start going south. Amazing. Psalm 103 says on that. So like a great burden that the Lord has taken upon his strong shoulders, he carries sin away into oblivion. You're familiar with that word. If you're not, you ought to be. It's a great blessing. Oblivion, the fact or condition of not remembering. It's exactly what he does. It's a state marked by lack or awareness or consciousness. I have no idea what you're talking about. What sin? For eternity. It's gone. He carries that away. 
He takes it away like the second goat who's run out into the wilderness after he has all the sins of the entire nation. How many sins? All of them. All of them for the entire nation on his head. Now, they would have to do that every year. Even the priest himself has to make a sacrifice for his sins. But Hebrews does a wonderful job of clarifying all of that, doesn't it? He is the one-time sacrifice. So he's taken those sins and he's gone out into oblivion with them, never to be consciously acknowledged again. Amazing. So he's obviously much more than a moralizer or a social reformer, the things that they've made it, that John, the point that John the Baptist had said to them, uh, he's, he's done something far more amazing. It's verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I actually like the way the Legacy Standard Bible puts this. After me comes a man who has been ahead of me for he existed before me. That's it, isn't it? Yeah, he's eternal. He's eternal. So this, a man who existed before me, is so, of course, this is the hypostatic union because he's saying he's both a man and eternal God. All in one. The unification of these two things in the man, Jesus Christ. Amazing. God, man. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Again, I like the LSB version. I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. When they, when I baptized Jesus, what did he see? coming down like a dove and it's probably not a literal dove but it's something as the scripture reveals in bodily form something falling on Jesus that he knew clearly was the Holy Spirit and so that's why from then on when he baptizes he's going to baptize how when Jesus baptizes and he's still doing that isn't he he's still doing that I did not Know him. This isn't gnosko. This is oida. Okay, so it means it indicates a mental process, uh, knowledge by intuition or reflection, as opposed to knowledge from observation or experience, which is the word gnosko that's typically translated into know or knowledge. Jesus spent most of his time in the wilderness. John was a man from Judah who spent 30 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee, rather. So they're, they're in different places. So at the baptism is when he knew, because the Father told him that. He said, You're, he'll be revealed in the baptism. You'll see who he is at that time. So in Matthew 16, verse 16 to 17, Simon Peter replied, it's very much like this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's the same kind of thing. John the Baptist knew who he was. Now, how much he knew about their family relationship, I didn't find anything in Scripture that revealed that part. John has been in the wilderness. Jesus and his ministry was up in Galilee. But he knew at that moment, he knew when he was baptized because verse 32, and John bore witness. He bore witness. So here it is. This is the witness. This is how he knows what he's talking about when he says, behold, the Lamb of God pointing at Christ. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. So because he doesn't even mention that this is the baptism. That's all he says. It clearly indicates that John, the writer of this gospel, assumes that everybody knows what he's talking about because they've had the synoptics for some decades now. So he knows that he's talking about the baptism, but if you want to read about the baptism, you have to go to the synoptics and read more about that. So 
Luke 3, verse 21 to 22, for instance, one of those places. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice that came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So it's not necessarily a literal dove. It's probably not that, but something in bodily, some kind of bodily a form that he's able to see with his physical eyes, John the Baptist, that he's receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist witnessed the anointing itself of Jesus Christ as Messiah by the Holy Spirit. John 3.34, when we get there, says, For he whom God has, set, has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, without measure. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Recovering of sight to the blind. What kind of sight to the blind is he talking about? Spiritual. But did he do both? Yes. And that was the indication that he would be the one powerful enough to do that both spiritually and figure. Uh, and physically, yeah. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so that's coming from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. So John literally saw the physical manifestation of the anointing of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So he baptizes where? When he baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Don't say the lake. He, you're bat, that's right. You're baptized in the heart. You're baptized in the heart. That's why John says, John the Baptist, I'm baptizing with water. We do that now because it's very important to make a public statement of our profession of faith publicly in Jesus Christ. But it's symbolic. It's the Lord who has to bring his spirit and baptize those who believe, who have seen him and recognized him as their savior. That's, that's the gospel. Verse 34, and we'll wrap this up. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There it is. I have seen. Saw him. I have seen him physically receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism. I've saw it. I audibly heard the Father speak. This is my beloved Son. This is the Son of God. Because remember, John, the writer of the Gospel, has one thing in mind, that seeing you might believe. So we proclaim Him, that your hearts might have found a straight path for the Word of God, so that Messiah can come straight into your heart and fill you with His Spirit and make you alive. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Thanks is hardly enough. Indeed, Lord, we plan on spending eternity just expressing our love for you and our gratitude for what you've done to make this possible. Thank you, Lord. Help us now, because we know the challenge it'll be when we leave this house and go back into our own and we go back into our lives, may we remember what we've heard here today from your word. And may we be those who see and only made 
to see because we believe. So Lord, help us to help others to see you. Give us the words. Give us wisdom. May we remember that we are to be prayer warriors on behalf of those who intersect with our lives who up to now haven't known you. And maybe even now, may they reconcile with you by saying, I see. I see the Lord in my heart of hearts. I've made the path straight for him to come and reveal himself, and he has. And joy and rejoicing with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, fulfilling the outcome of our faith, the eternal salvation of our souls. May that be the case now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.